How many love the Word of God? How many want the Holy Spirit to encounter you this morning with His Word? And to plant eternal seeds in you that make you more into the image of Jesus. And that align you more fully with His purposes for your life. How many would like that? Okay, lift up your hand to the Lord and let's tell Him. Lord, we ask you for alignment. We ask you for wisdom. We ask you to impart inside of our hearts, our minds, and our souls eternal seeds that will never leave us, but that will shape us and change us and draw us into the very purposes that you have created us for as a people, as individuals, and as a body. Thank you for your holy word. Lord, we delight in your word. We're so grateful for your word. Holy Spirit, breathe upon it in our hearts this morning. Make it alive, we pray, and be the teacher in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. The Bible is exceedingly precious. You know, there's been a long history in the church of people that have died to try to get the Bible in their own language and given their lives. John Wycliffe was one of those. He was banished from his country in hiding for most of his adult life while he translated the Scripture into English. His translation ended up becoming over 90% with what is the King James Bible now. He did that single-handedly. That was his heart's passion. He told the bishop of the Catholic Church one time, if I have my way, the plowboy out in the field will know more of the Scripture than you do. There were people in that time in England who taught their children the Lord's Prayer in English. And when the authorities found out, they burnt the parents and the children for reciting the Lord's Prayer in English. It's precious. There was a long history where the Word of God was suppressed. It was only kept in languages that most people did not know. Now we have it in abundance. And so what is the enemy's plan now? His plan now is to get us to take it for granted and go, oh, yeah, I've got a Bible. Oh, yeah, a Bible, yeah, whatever. And to distract us from the power that is in this Word to transform and to change us. It's amazing. We should treasure it. I love it. The Word of God. It's breathed out by God, the Bible says. It's breathed out by God. His very inner essence is in His Word. And we can breathe it in to our soul. You want to have an encounter with God? Get in a quiet place. With the Word of God, open up your heart and breathe in its life. It's powerful. I, if I could do anything for you, probably one of the most helpful things that I could do to bless your life. See, I'm a firm believer that people in our lives that cause us to be hungry and dissatisfied with the place that we are are the people that actually bless us more than anybody else. If, if I could put in you a little spark of hunger and passion to treasure God's Word as the breath of God, the living breath of God, I would bless your life. If I could put in you a little more hunger 
and say, God, this is your word. You spoke this out of your very inner essence. You went through all kinds of issues and sacrificed lots of people who gave their lives in order to get it here. And now I'm not going to take it for granted. I'm going to treasure this word. See, the attitude toward the word of God, I believe, that epitomizes what is supposed to be in us is Psalm 119. This is not broccoli. This is not a road map. This is not a tool alone. This is treasure. This is the real revelation that is infallible of the living God. God says, if you want to know me, breathe in my word. If you want to know my ways, breathe in my word. If you want to be conformed to the image of my son, breathe in my word. I delight in your word more than in all riches. My soul is crushed with longing continuously for your word. I give my eyes no sleep. I wait through the night watches. Waiting for your word. David speaks like someone who's having a torrid affair about the word of God. Is that our heart? Is that our passion? I just want to put it out there. This is real. How would you measure your passion for God's word? Okay, no charge for that. I want to speak this morning about the atmosphere in our Father's house. What do I mean by that? Last time I spoke, I talked about what I believe our inheritance is. I believe it because it's in the Scripture, but I believe it with every fiber of my being that what the Father wants to do in our body here is to create a house, a temple, and an atmosphere with the people that he's drawn here, that he will dwell in. He'll make his permanent dwelling and habitation. Not just come and visit, not just come and bless occasionally, but actually inhabit and live and dwell in our midst. I believe that with all of my being. I do. I believe it. I'm all in. I believe that. I believe the, because the Scripture teaches that's what the Lord's purpose is, but also because I believe that the Spirit of the Lord keeps witnessing to me in my heart over and over again, this is what I want. Keep going for that. Don't give up. Don't settle for less. This is what I want to do in this body. I believe it. I do. I'm all in. There's an atmosphere that the Father wants to establish in this house. A lot of us were raised in broken or worldly homes, and you know what it's like to go in a home and you feel the atmosphere there, right? You ever walk into a home and you feel like, oh boy, eggshells. There's eggshells here. Or tension. Or strife. Anybody ever felt these things at home? You don't even have to have it explained. You can feel what the atmosphere is like when you walk in. That's the same in church. It's the same in our body here. There's an atmosphere the Father wants an atmosphere of peace and of love. He wants an atmosphere where His Spirit has freedom to flow. He wants an atmosphere where there's spiritual hunger and passion. He wants an atmosphere where Jesus Christ is central and worshipped, where Jesus is the magnificent obsession, where we're not obsessed with external things or men's gifts. We're obsessed with the Son of God. 
And our heart's desire and our longing is for Him to be seen and shown and magnified and to worship Him in spirit and truth. God, there's an atmosphere that He wants to create in our body here. And I want to talk about what that is. Can we agree to start out with, I'm I'm turning to Colossians chapter 3 because that's going to be my main text. Colossians chapter 3. Can we agree that what is most important in this body is that God establishes the atmosphere that He's comfortable with? And not that we get the atmosphere that we're comfortable with? Okay, let me say that again. You guys are being a tough crowd this morning. Can we agree that what's most important moving forward is that God establishes in this place the atmosphere that He wants, that He's comfortable with, that He wants to dwell in, and not necessarily that we create an atmosphere that we're going to be most comfortable with? Are we good with that? With that premise starting? Okay, so what kind of atmosphere does the Father want to establish? Colossians chapter 3. I've just got a few points here, and then we're going to receive communion together as a body afterwards. Atmosphere, again, is a huge issue for me. It's a huge concept for me because in my life, in my spiritual life with the Lord, um, my wife was raised in a train wreck divorce home situation. Her dad left. Just really brutal. I won't go into all the details. Some of you have heard it before. Super, super bad train wreck. Her mom worked two and three jobs, so she wasn't home very much. Her and her sister were mostly on their own. And um, the miracle is with her, she literally ate candy for dinner for a long, long time. That's all that they would eat is just candy, Twinkies, peanut butter, and jelly. They didn't really have real food a lot of times. The grandparents would bring back grocery sacks of candy to them every week, and that's what they ate. Because their mom was working. She wasn't there, so... She became addicted to sugar and to eating that kind of stuff. And to the glory of God, he delivered her from all that addiction. And now she's the healthiest eating person that I know, <laughs> which I praise God for because it's helped me immensely in my own journey. Um, so that was a train wreck. My, my home wasn't a broken home in divorce sense, but my, my family was worldly. Our pursuits were all about pleasure, status, image, material things, success in life, what other people would look at and go, oh, you're a successful person. Comparing with the Joneses, that that was how I was raised, materialism. So it was a worldly mindset, not in any sense Christian. So we didn't know what it was supposed to be like. When we got married, we just know what it wasn't supposed to be like, right? So we actually made an agreement as teenagers and shook hands on it. We said, look, we're not going to run each other down with our mouth. We're not going to criticize each other. We're not going to do all this stuff that causes strife like we're over the strife. We're over the tension. We're over all of that. We're going to never speak about each other to anyone else or to each other in a harsh, criticizing, or hurtful way. And by the grace of God, I, I believe that we've kept that all these years. Because we wanted to create a new atmosphere in our marriage When we got married, we were told over and over again, oh, wait till after the first year, you'll find out you're in for it now. And we were like, oh, my gosh, what are we in for? 
But after the first year, the reality is this, is this is to the glory of God. After the first year, we looked at each other. I think we still had some of our wedding cake in the freezer, right? It was as stale as could be. But you, you take a little bit of that out and you celebrate by eating that. And we looked at each other and we said, man, if this was the worst of it, this is going to be awesome. That's real. Atmosphere changes everything. When we begin to have children, the Lord dealt with us to have a large family. And you've heard my story on that, how I agonized with that, because I did not know how to raise Christian children. And all children come out of the womb as heathen. Um, so I didn't know. I, I was clueless. My dad was not a believer. He was a, quote, good man. But he was a man that was driven by his job. And um, he, we had no spiritual influence in our home. So I cried out to the Lord. Some of you heard this story. Just bear with me because this speaks to the issue of atmosphere. This is, this is something that the Lord showed me and revealed to me that changed my whole life, and I believe it's applicable to us as a people of God for the church. Here's the deal. So I cried out to the Lord over and over again. I said, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. And I could say it a thousand times because that's about how many times I said it to the Lord. Like I was terrified. Of, of trying to raise children and, and raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I didn't know how to do it. I felt like a failure. I went to all the promise meters, promise meters, no, promise keepers meetings to try to figure it out. I read books and stuff, and I just felt overwhelmed. I felt like I can't do this. These guys are awesome. They're having three Bible studies a day with their kids. I mean, their kids can already quote, quote the first five books of the Bible verbatim. I don't even know what I'm doing. What am I doing? God, I know what I'm doing. And so I felt desperate and broken. And I told my wife over and over again, baby, I'm a terrible dad. I don't know what I'm doing. And I told the Lord that. And one day he gave me a glimmer of light from heaven that forever changed me. It's real. Here's what he spoke to my heart. He said, if you will create an atmosphere in your home, where the Holy Spirit is pleased to dwell, I will do in your children what you can never do. And I went, I know one thing about raising kids. I know one thing. This is what I know. I've got to work on the atmosphere in my home. Holy Spirit, what are you pleased to dwell in? Okay, I know you don't want this junk coming out of the TV, spewing this garbage and to my kids' brains because their minds aren't trash cans. They hated me telling them that, but it's real. <laughs> so we're going to work on that. We're going to speak words of love. We're not going to allow our kids to be hateful, to fight, to call each other names. Like, they got discipline for that. Even when they were too little to know bad words, our two sons would get into it. You boo-boo. You da-da. <laughs> well, you know what? The intent of the heart was evil. That got discipline. No, we don't do that. We don't call each other boo-boo and blah-blah. <laughs> this is your brother. The, you are going to be friends for the rest of your life. You're going to be best friends. We told them that over and over again. This is, this is how God orchestrates families. You're going to be best friends the rest of your life. And so we would teach them. We were sure to speak words of affirmation, but also words of truth and correction. I'm not saying we did it perfectly. Did we do it perfectly? No way. But the Lord helped us, and that helped me 
more than anything in the journey of raising children is think about the atmosphere. What kind of atmosphere is the Holy Spirit pleased to dwell in? If he's dwelling here, he's going to reveal himself to your children. Because listen, mom and dad, you can tell them all day long the Bible stories. I told my wife over and over again, she can testify. Baby, I do not want my kids to learn a church Jesus. Now that sounds bad. Let me explain it. I thank God here that we've got John and Leah. They're the people for the job. They carry God's heart for these children. She weeps over them. They pray over them. They cry over them. They give them the word of God. It's beautiful. But I didn't want my kids learning the 66 books and the songs and the words and the Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Nothing wrong with those things per se. But if that's all they get, they're going to be inoculated into religion. And when they get older, they're going to go, oh, I tried Christianity, and that's nothing. But they never experienced the living God. My cry before the Lord over the years, I cried before the Lord. I paced in my bedroom. I call my kids' names out. Jace, Cameron, Nichols, Shana, Noel, Nichols. I call, Lord, remember them to bless them. Make yourself known to them. Reveal yourself to them. You've got to reveal yourself to them or they'll never know you. If they just hear it from me, they'll never know you. And I call their name before the Lord like the high priest wore the tribes on the breastplate when he went into the presence of God. God wanted that because he wanted to be reminded of them that he would remember them to bless them. And I took that and I said, God, that's what I'm doing. I'm wearing my seven on my chest and I'm calling their name before you that you would reveal yourself to them and make yourself known to them. It wasn't some great strategy on my part. I just knew I was bankrupt. And the Lord, to his everlasting glory, like he revealed himself to my children. It wasn't just me, but it was a product here. They would be little, and they would do something wrong. This is real. They would come running in there crying. I didn't. Nobody knew it, but I went and I did something, and I took somebody something and took it, and they come crying and repenting. Really? You're four years old, and you're turning yourself in? That's what the Holy Spirit does when he dwells. When he dwells in a body like this, if we create an atmosphere where the Holy Spirit is pleased to dwell, not with what we want, but with what he wants, because whose house is it? Whose house is it? It's not our house. It's God's house. So we don't go in there and tell him, God, you, your taste in carpet sucks. Get that out. Get that stuff off the wall. I don't like that picture. He's like, excuse me, but this is my house. This is not your house. And my house, I decorate it the way I want. In your house, you can decorate it the way you want. And so we want for the Lord to be at home. We impose all kinds of ideas on God as far as what we think it should be like and what we think he should do and what we think everything should be set up like. But here's, here's my plea for us. Why don't we take what he says in his word, the atmosphere that he loves to dwell in, and embrace that and say, God, this is where we're going to go. Because this is your house and we want you to be comfortable here. We want you to have your way here. We want you to manifest yourself here in power and in glory. And we want Jesus to be lifted up. All the things that we long for. The transformation of hearts. God does when he's welcomed in a place. There's an atmosphere 
It's bigger than us. I want to tell you, it's just bigger than us. It's bigger than our body. It's bigger than this city, I believe. The Lord wants to do something. He wants a people that say, God, not about me. This is about you. What do you want here? How can I be part of giving you what you want so that you will come and dwell and make your permanent habitation here? Anybody on board with me? Going here. Okay. Let's look at one passage. This isn't everything. Okay. We can't cover everything. We might only cover one thing. Let's see how far we get. But Colossians chapter 3, I want to start reading in verse 12. Our destiny in God can only be achieved and understood in community. That's a true statement. We were called in one body, not just individually. Our calling cannot be rightly understood or lived out solely on an individual basis. Verse 12. I'm going to read verses 12 through 15, and then we're going to talk about some of these issues. And I will tell you, this is not going to be hugely revelational to you. But, but here's the issue. Here's what we do, and this is human nature, but it's also Christian nature. We talk about things, and so then we think we've done them. But God goes, that's a great idea. Where, where is it, though? Like, where, where? So, so let's, let's take ownership of what God is after and be, take our part and take our place in giving him what he wants. Verse 12, long introduction. Sorry for the ramble. Colossians 3.12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, here's where the atmosphere starts, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. Why do you suppose it says bearing with one another? Because we aggravate each other. We're different. Have you ever been aggravated with a brother or sister in Christ? Have you ever had chafed with them because of their different opinions and their different ways? All right, there's two honest people. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another. I read a news article not too long ago. Here's the, here's the headline. Vegan woman rams car into chicken truck in Georgia. This woman was vegan, and she was so irritated with the Chick-fil-A truck that went by, she literally rammed her car into it and then backed up and rammed into it again, and then she went home to her house, and they found her there. Hit and run on a chicken truck from vegan woman. Differences of opinion. Can you say COVID? Hello? Can you say COVID? I know you don't want to, but can you say it? Differences of opinion among people in the body of Christ that have caused people to be at each other's throats. And the miracle of the gospel is that we can love each other in spite of our differences and our differences of opinion. We'll get into that a little bit more. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. 
really a better translation of that and what the margin of my Bible says is that love is the uniting bond of perfection. What does that mean? That when we live in real biblical love, that that is the thing in community that actually perfects us and brings us into the destiny for which God created us. It brings Christ-likeness into our lives. Have you noticed that? That God's favorite tool for sanctifying us is relationships? How many know that's true? That's true. His favorite tool for sanctifying us is our relationships with each other. So, pop quiz. Which commandment in the New Testament is repeated more often than any other? Yeah. Love one another. By my count, that phrase and that command directly is repeated 19 times, by far more than any other command in the New Testament. But you've also got all of these other commands that surround that and actually expound on it and explain it, like these that we just read. Be forgiving, be tenderhearted, be humble, be gentle. All of those kinds of things are really descriptions of what it means to love one another. So I know we get tired and we think we got the love thing down, and I love, each, I love people because I have a group of people that... I, I kind of like, and we sort of connect, and we have a chemistry together. But this is beyond chemistry. What God is doing is beyond chemistry. What he wants to do is a miraculous move of his spirit in our hearts to where we can truly love each other in a deep way. I've got a couple of quotes I want to read you from Art Katz out of his book, True Fellowship, which is a treasure in my view. In the daily life of the community, Conducting our lives on a daily basis in close proximity to others guarantees that there will be tensions, misunderstandings, individual quirks. Dave, he used that word. Individual quirks, struggles, and differences of opinion. Our disrespect for one another, our innate selfishness, and insidious self-justifications are all revealed. It is a painful but necessary revelation of our hearts. Anybody ever experienced this? Am I preaching to the clouds? Anybody ever experience this? This is real. This happens in families, and it happens in churches all the time. Here's the deal. In America, one of the great hindrances to God having his way and having the people that he wants to inhabit is that we're so individualistic that we view church as being a supplement to our individual walk with God instead of actually being an incorporation as a body living, breathing body together, loving each other on a deep level that is miraculous. How do I know it's miraculous? Because Jesus said, this is how unbelievers out there are going to know that you're my disciples. Because you work miracles, you heal the sick, and you speak in tongues. Oh, did I misquote that? This is how they're going to know that you're my disciples, that you belong to me, that something miraculous has happened in you. Because of how you love one another. I know in the early church it was said by the unbelieving Romans, pagans of the Christians. You can, you can read it in the writings. They said things like this. Oh, my God. Look at how they love each other. They will lay down their life for each other. In the Colosseum, sometimes they would lay down their life for each other. No, I'll, I'll take it. You've, you've got a family. I, I don't have a family. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Put me out there with the wild beasts. I'll, I'll take it. 
They still died, but somebody took notice. That's a miracle. That's a miracle when we lay down our lives for one another. But did you know that that is actually the definition for love in the Bible? And so, what am I saying? I'm calling us, and I believe the Lord is calling us. Listen, I said last time I preached, I believe that this is the most loving body that I've ever been part of, and I believe that's true. You guys respond amazingly well. This is not in any fashion a beatdown. What this is is just a plea for us just to keep moving and not to settle down and go, oh, yeah, we're doing really good. That is true. We're doing good. You should be encouraged. I want you to feel encouraged because I believe as a body we do love really well. And we're learning. Our relationships are getting deeper. But I believe we've got to, to get where God wants us to be, we've got to push past our comfort zone. Because love is rarely ever comfortable or convenient. Anybody found that out? That's true. So 19 direct commands to love. And it's not only doing love. If you ask people what their definition of biblical love, what's the definition of agape? I think most people would say something like, well, it's doing what somebody needs. It's doing what's best for that person. I think that's true. In a sacrificial way, I think that's true. But did you know that the Bible commands us to love each other in a broader way even than that? This is where it gets uncomfortable. The Bible actually uses all of the main Greek words for love and commands us to do all of those things towards each other. So agape is one which is that selfless kind of love that sacrifices for someone else. That's awesome. Phileo is another one. Philadelphia, brotherly love, right? We're supposed to love each other as brothers and sisters. That's commanded. Third word, storge, is the word for family affection. We're commanded to love each other with family affection as well. Did you know the Bible commands five times in the New Testament letters for us to greet one another with a kiss? How many hate that it says that in there? <laughs> Five times. Four times it says greet one another with a holy kiss. One time it says greet one another with a kiss of love. So let's just do a little wrestle role play because I like to do the wrestle. At the end of your life, you're standing before Jesus. And you know love is going to be on the final exam, right? Do you know love's going to be on the final exam? If you don't, you should. Jesus made that very plain. Matthew 25, what did he say? To the sheep and the goats. To the extent that you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Enter into the joy of your master, but to the goats. To the degree that you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brother, you rejected me. Here's what we should feel the weight of Jesus. Like he identifies with his people to such a great degree that he takes it personally how we treat each other. When you yelled in their face, you yelled in my face. Did you know that? When you ignored them because they were lesser or they couldn't do anything for you, did you know that you ignored me? When you looked away and wouldn't make eye contact with them, do you know that's what you did to me? Like, this is weighty stuff. Jesus actually said at the end of the day, when we're judged and our life is over, the judgment, partially at least, is going to be about this whole issue of love. And did you, did I, 
actually love in a deep way? Did I respond to the least of these? Here's what I want to know. Here's my heart's passion and my heart's desire. I want to find out who the least are and make sure I love them. The least might be the Down syndrome, boys and girls, who are precious to Jesus. I almost got in a fist fight one time over this. The Lord restrained. Standing next to a guy, bus goes by. It's filled with Down syndrome, kids out on a field trip. And he says to me, he said it to the wrong person, but I erupted in my heart. I, I wanted to hit him. He said, oh, there goes a bunch of window lickers. I was like, my God, you just called Jesus that. I believe that makes the Lord angry. So, on that day, Jesus is going to ask you about the love thing. And you are having this conversation with him. And he's going to say, have you learned to love? You said, yes, Lord. I loved my wife, my children. I loved those people that I had chemistry with that I connected with, and he's going to ask you, well, you know in my word, right, it says that why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I command? So I did put five commands in the New Testament for, like, you to greet one another with a holy kiss. And what's up with that? How many don't want to hear that from the Lord? Like, what's up with that? Okay, so, so what are you going to answer? So I, I get it. I think a lot of us would, would throw down the culture card, right? Who would throw down the culture card at that question? Okay, that's a cultural thing, Jesus. That's a cultural thing. They, they kissed each other back then because that was a cultural thing. But then he's probably going to come back with the, with the retort. Okay, but I left those in the New Testament letters knowing that there was a cultural implication at the time, but why did I leave them in there, and what do you think the meaning behind that is? That's where we go silent. And he's going to say something like this. This is just, this is my imagination. What do you think the kiss was supposed to express to your brothers and sisters? And you're going to say with a questioning tone, affection? He's going to say, exactly. So, and I know that the ladies get creeped out whenever you talk about the Holy Kiss. I get, I, know, I get it. You ladies, you get creeped out by this. It's okay. Here's the point, though. What do you kiss? You kiss things that are precious to you, Right? So expressing to your brothers and sisters that they are precious to you is the point of the holy kiss. So if you can do that in some other way, I'm a hugger myself. I'm not a big kisser of people on the cheeks, although I, I can do it to grandmothers and aunts and all that. Um, I'm okay with it. I'm not afraid of it. I've already had COVID. Um, 
but just saying there is a broad spectrum of loving one another that Jesus wants to get up in our business. Here's the deal. He wants to get up in your business, and he wants to get you outside of your comfort zone so that you can have a full expression of love for your brothers and sisters. How many are going to pass that now when you have that conversation with Jesus on that day? That's real. What is the essence of discipleship? It is learning to obey his commandments, right? Baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey the most convenient parts of what I've taught you. Teaching them to obey everything I told you. Everything. Really? Everything? Jesus, everything? Really? Everything? Holy kiss and everything? He's like, yes, get the point. What is the message there? Expressing the love that he calls us to express actually is deeper than just having chemistry with somebody. There's actually a giving of ourselves and becoming one in a, in a way that is supernatural. The oneness that God calls us to is supernatural. That's a real thing. We need to feel the weight of how much Jesus identifies with his own people and that when we treat each other in a way that's ungodly, he takes it personally. You remember Acts chapter 9? Paul riding to Damascus with papers to arrest the Christians. And Jesus says, hey, it's me. Strikes him down with lightning, falls on the ground, he's blind. Who is it? It's Jesus whom you are persecuting. Because when you are going after my people, I take that personally. You're doing it to me. He does. Love is the atmosphere, it's the air that we breathe. Jesus knows how different and how quirky we can be and how hard it is. I want to show you something. If you flip back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. The power of what he did on the cross actually dealt with these walls of separation that we build up from our background and from our culture. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. And by it, having put to death the enmity. Who is he talking about in this passage? What, where was the wall of partition? Where was the separation? What two groups is he making into one new man? The Jews and the Gentiles. There has never been, I want to submit to you, in the history of mankind, I do not believe there has ever been a greater wall of enmity and separation than between Jews and Gentiles. They despised each other. The Jews called the Gentiles what? Dogs. Not exactly a flattering term. 
They despised each other. They were different in every conceivable way. Politically, the Gentiles mostly loved the Roman Empire because they gave them prosperity. The Jews despised them because they took their land and they were in captivity. Religiously, the Gentiles were pagan idolaters who ate blood and ate pork and ate all of these detestable things to them. They couldn't stomach it. That, you're detestable. They despised each other. Morally, the way they lived, the way they dressed, the way they ate, everything about their lives was absolutely contrary to each other, and they despised each other. That's real. So Jesus said, when I die on the cross, the power of my death, burial, and resurrection to those who will receive it into their lives is so powerful that it can take two groups that despise and hate each other and make them one in love in a way that makes the world stand up and take notice and go, oh my God. That's real. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of the gospel. There was a guy named Johnny Lee Clary in Louisiana. This is back in the 1970s and 80s. He was an avowed racist, was in the Ku Klux Klan, was rising in the Klan. And he had a, particularly hate, he had a particular hatred for a black pastor in that town. Actually went and burned his house down. Lit his house on fire and burned that black pastor's house down to the ground. The black pastor was a born-again man. He went to Johnny Lee and he said, I know you burned my house down, but I love you, and I'm not giving up on you. Johnny Lee hated him, despised him, tried to cause as much trouble for him as he could, and God worked through this black pastor and finally broke through that hard heart and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And for the rest of his life, he traveled with that black pastor, speaking everywhere in churches about the reconciliation and the miracle of the new birth and how it changes your heart and takes away all of those dividing walls and the hatred that's in there. That's how they both finished their life, preaching together as a tag team. That's real. That speaks of the power of the gospel. So look, our little differences, we're all pretty. In some ways, we have a lot of same views in, in this room. So it makes it easier on a starting place. But, but there's, listen, there's a miracle that happens when we're born again. We, our default now is to actually love each other in a deep and real way. Let love be without hypocrisy. It's got to be real. It's not a fake thing. Oh, hi, how are you doing? It's not that. It's how are you doing? What can I do to help you? How much do you need? Should I say that again? <laughs> how are you doing? How much do you need? How can I help you? That's the miracle. This is what God loves to dwell in. He loves to dwell where there's unity among the brethren, right? Psalm 133, you know it. 
What is it like when brothers dwell together in unity? It's like the anointing oil that's poured over Aaron's hair and his beard, and it runs down all of his garments. It's the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit marking him out, and God's presence comes in its fullness. And it says in Psalm 133, where that happens, God commands the blessing. I want to tell you something. When the voice from heaven commands a blessing, the blessing comes. You can't keep it back. The devil can't keep it back. There's going to be a tide and a torrent, a blessing that come where there's that atmosphere. And God says, I love living here. I love living here. Look at these people. I love it. That's what we want. That's where we're going. We want to be partners in the process of what the Lord's wanting to do here. This is totally different than spectator Christianity. That's not okay. This is totally different than consumer Christianity, where we go to church to get a nice message and worship to supplement our personal life with God, and then we go back in our independent way, and we're not actually really hooked up and loving people in a deep way. God doesn't dwell with that. I'm not saying he doesn't bless people. He does. I lived that way for a lot of my life. You probably did too. But there's something higher that he wants to do. It's in his word, but I'm convinced in my heart that he wants to do a work like that in this body. He wants a place where he can dwell, where love flows like a river, and it's real. It's not fake. It's not Hollywood plastic. It's real. He commands the blessing. Look at verse 15 of Colossians 3. If you turn back to Colossians 3, verse 15. So this is my first point. What kind of atmosphere does God love to dwell in? He loves to dwell where his people treasure each other. Where his people treasure each other. Look, if you've grown up with lots of rejection, this is going to be hard for you because you're automatically going to be cynical of people's motives. Okay, you, you've got to get past that. You really do. You've got to get past that. And... If they do have bad motives, then you need to be able to go to them and love and confront and talk to them. This is how it works in community. This is why it's awkward sometimes and it's hard. We have to have those conversations that are not fun to have, but they're necessary. Because, listen, if you don't tell me the truth about myself, how am I going to be able to repent and change and ask God to come in and invade me and take that junk out of my life? Like, we live with our own dysfunction so long that we can't see it. This is the beauty of community. I, for one, want to be made into the image of Jesus, and I want all of the junk that's unlike him to be taken out of my life. But I need you to help me to see it. I really do. So come to me. My best friends hurt my feelings all the time. That's real. Because they tell me the truth, and I love them for it. I love them for it. It's rare for people to have enough um, security to be able to actually come. If you're like me, that's really rare in your life. I mean, I can count on my hands, maybe one hand, the times where people have actually come to me and brought correction in a loving spirit. It's super rare. People are intimidated. They don't want to come and tell you. But I will tell you personally, like I will get down on my knees and kiss your feet and thank you for that. I've had people correct me when it was completely wrong. 
But I still thank them profusely. I thank you so much for reaching out and taking the risk because I know how hard this is for you to take this risk. But I just love you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you putting yourself out there. So beautiful. If we could have enough relationship to be able to do that, there would be a flow of love there where we could trust each other, where we would deeply love each other, where we would be willing, where there would not be a needy person among us. You know what the greatest miracle in the book of Acts was? It's not when Eutychus fell three stories out of the window because Paul was preaching too long. You guys, I don't preach long at all. He's thinking preach all night long. Young guy fell out the window, broke his neck dead. Went down, raised him up, brought him back up so I could finish his message. You're not going to interrupt my message. I'm just getting to my third close right now. Get back up in the window. we got to finish. I don't even know where it's going, Toby. Do you know where it was? Oh, thank you. Say, there's a friend. I had a friend one time good friend of mine, and we're, we're getting together, and the first, as soon as he sees me, he goes, he goes, um, Barry, he goes, like, dude, you've got nose hairs growing out of your nose that look like tusks. <laughs> I'm like, what in the world? Nice meeting you, too. <laughs> but you know what? He blessed my life, because now I look in the mirror before I go out, and I trim my nose hairs. <laughs> That's actually a blessing, Right? Have you seen people where they've got like a piece of tissue stuck to their beard or something and nobody says anything to them and they walk around like an hour like that? Or they've got chocolate on their mouth and nobody says to them, hey, you know, you got we're so insecure because we're afraid of being rejected because of our history. And that's why we're building a new culture in the kingdom where we love each other enough to speak the truth, but we speak it in love. We don't speak it to like a sword. We don't speak it to cut or hurt. We speak it to help and to build up because that's what we want too. We want to be like Jesus. So the greatest miracle in the book of Acts was not that or not the works of power that the apostles did. Many signs and wonders were done through their hands. I believe we're going to see a lot more of that. I do. I believe it. But the greatest miracle in the book of Acts, in my view, was this. When the Holy Spirit came, they all came together, and it makes this statement, which is so phenomenally miraculous, and not one of them counted anything they owned as being their own. Are you serious? Are you serious? That's definitely not the American way. American way is to pile my big pile of my dung so that you can be impressed by my pile being bigger than yours. None of them counted anything that they had as being their own, but they all gave freely and no one had need. I'm not talking about communism or being in a commune. That wasn't mandated by the apostles. That was the Holy Spirit in the heart that says, your stuff is not your own. This is for my purposes and for my kingdom and for my community. And you just release. If you're in the flow of the Holy Spirit, I want to tell you something. There'll be a spirit of release in your life. I try to tell people this. They think it's there's some kind of vested interest. There's not. This is the reality of life in my life. Some of the greatest joy that I've ever experienced in God is just releasing stuff to be a blessing to other people. That's true. 
Like if you're stuck and you're clogged up and your pipe is clogged up, it's because it's not flowing enough in the right direction. It's like a septic tank. If it backs up and it's going the wrong direction, it stinks. Let that flow. I'm telling you something to help you. This is real. We think, oh, preacher, not about me. He wants to get your money. No. I want you to be filled with joy in your life with Jesus. I'm not saying give it to me or give it to the heart of the Father. I'm saying have an outflow in your life where your stuff doesn't connect and attach itself and glue itself to you, where you're always on the lookout. God, where do you want me to sell? Where do you want me to bless? That's a beautiful way to live, I'm telling you. You want the flow of the Holy Spirit in your life? You want the gifts of the Spirit to operate in your life? Now I'm on a ramble, bro. I'm on a ramble now. Here's the way to start. Ask the Lord, Lord, where can I give this $100? Give me wisdom. Show me. Highlight that person. That might be a bigger blessing than prophesying over them that they're greater than all 12 apostles put together. So maybe they need to pay their electric bill. Lord, show me. Listen, I'm telling you, if you want the, the word of knowledge to operate in your life, this is a great place to start. Lord, show me where to give this money because your motive is to love and not to be recognized as being the awesome. You guys okay with this? Do you want to go with me here? Do you want to go with me here? Do you want to create in our body a place where love abounds so much that it attracts God? He's like, I love that place. I'm asking you all, maybe some of you that are on the the margins and you just kind of come and all that, and there's no no put down in in any way. I just want to urge you to pray into what your place is and what the Lord has for you in this body if you believe that he sent you here. What does he want for you? How does he want you to connect? How does he want you to be part of this body and to put in your supply and to let his life that's in you and the grace that's in you to flow freely to other people? I'm going to read one quote, and then i got two more quick scriptures, and then we're going to do communion. You guys okay? Remember last time I preached, I was done at one minute till 12. Okay? I'm holding that as credit in the bank. Okay, here we go. How do we measure love? How do we measure it? If we're supposed to be loving consistently and deeply, we should be able to know how we measure it, right? Anybody have any ideas? How do we measure it? All right, I'm going to give you two ways that we measure it. Galatians chapter 5 is the first one. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve 
one another. I want to point out a couple things in this verse. It's super powerful. Freedom for us as charismatics, we love to dance around the fire of freedom, right? I'm free to dance. I'm free to shout. I'm free, right? If I could sing, I would. I can't sing, Brother Randy. But um, if I had you up here, I'd have you sing. I'm free to dance. I'm free. So we, we love to dance around freedom. But when Paul is talking about freedom to the Galatians and throughout Scripture, what's he talking about? He's not talking about a worldly autonomy where we can do whatever we want. That's not what he's talking about because nobody does whatever they want, right? The Bible teaches you're either the slave of sin or you're the slave of righteousness. You're either the slave of the enemy or you're the slave of God. There is no middle ground where you're perfectly operating in your freedom and you can do whatever you want. That's not the biblical understanding at all of freedom. Freedom is that he takes us out of bondage, not so that we can do whatever the heck we want, but so that we can do what we were created for and be what we were created for. So what is that? What is that freedom that he's talking about in verse 13? You were called to freedom, brethren, only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, which means doing whatever you want, whatever feels good to you, but through love, serve one another. And I want to point out to you, if you look in other translations, if you look in the original text there, the word serve there actually is, should be translated act as slaves towards one another. Act as slaves towards one another. You go, wow, what is that? It's strong on purpose because Paul doesn't want you to think that serving one another is, is something that doesn't cost. It does. Act as slaves. The point is to regularly act as slaves to one another and so serving one another's interests. Martin Luther said about this verse, the freedom of the Christian is a slavery to love. I mean, don't like that. Don't like that at all. How do we measure love? So, so let's just put a little thermometer on our, our love meter. We measure love by whether we serve each other as slaves. What does that mean? They tell you what to do? No. It just means that our heart posture is that we're going to humbly serve wherever there's a need to do that. I get, folks, I get that this isn't shouting territory and that we, we want to shout around the fire and around the fire. I get that. But if we want to create the atmosphere that God wants to dwell in, then we're going to be people of love. This is not negotiable. This is going to be on the final exam for all of us. And so if I can urge you to, to raise your game in the area of love, then I will bless you for eternity. Because when you stand before Jesus, you're going to go, I hated that message that he preached, but I'm so glad now. Second measure. These are the two S words. They're not curse words, but they're the two S words that measure what love is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, and then 4, verse 10. And then we're going to do communion here. 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this. We feel so good and affirmed. Oh. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is how we know what love is. So our definition of love, may I submit to you, our definition of love might not be accurate. Our definition of love probably is not accurate. Our definition of love probably won't be a good one to hold when we stand before Jesus on the last day. 
Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sacrificed Himself for us. He took the wrath of God for us. That's how He loved us, and that is the definition of what sin is. He redeemed us by giving Himself. Final quote from Mark Katz again. This, this dude is super provocative, and I, I like that kind of stuff. I, I like preaching that blows my hair back and singes it a little bit. I, I do like that. I, I want to be challenged. I want to be, I want to be driven to my knees and look in the mirror and go, God, what is the real truth about me, and how can I change? Our cats, do not measure your love for God by your rapturous euphoria in an imagined relationship with the Lord that has been stimulated by choruses and worship. That would be a deception. Our supposed love for God is tested to the full by how much love we show for the brethren. In the wisdom and genius of God, we're saved from insisting that we can enjoy an exclusive relationship with God while at the same time living separated from the community. I've been deluded like that. I, I will just admit to you that I have in my life for sure. Because I thought I was having euphoria, euphoric times of worship before the Lord. But here's what the Bible says in 1 John again. Everyone that's born of God loves his brother. And if you don't love, here, here's the kicker. John is so straight with the truth. He says you're a liar like five times in that book. If you say this and you do this, you're a liar. You're not misled. Sorry, Mick. I know he cringes when I do that. It gets him because I had the heart surgery. Like, it's better than it was before. Okay, it's all good. Here's the deal. If we don't love in the way that he describes, the Bible says we don't know God. How can you say that you love God whom you have not seen, but you don't love your brother whom you see? That's not possible. He's saying it's not possible. So how can we up our game? How can we create in this body? This is only point one, so that means there's going to be future messages that I'm going to pull out of this passage. How can we be part of what the Lord wants here? How can we have relationships in our body to where God looks at us and he says, I want to be there. I want to be there. I want to be there in that body. I love the way that they love each other. Look how they love each other. 